Good afternoon and, and welcome. Um, it's, it's my pleasure to introduce our, our speaker for today, Professor Will Hitchcock. Uh, Professor Hitchcock is, is professor and chair of the department at Temple University. He's previously taught at well, Wellesley and at Yale University. He did his Ph.D. At, at Yale, but began his academic career, it's important to note, right here in Ohio at uh, Kenyon College. He's the, and, and he's um, not actually long for Temple because he just recently accepted a position as professor at the University of Virginia. So sometime this summer he'll be moving from Philadelphia to Charlottesville to join their strong history department. He's the author of three major books. His first book was a study of French foreign policy during the early Cold War period. And his second book was a really um, magisterial interpretive synthesis of post-war European history. And his most recent book, which was uh, the winner of the AHA's prestigious Beer Prize, uh, and also was a finalist for a Pulitzer Prize, is entitled The Bitter Road to Freedom, A New History of the Liberation of Europe. And today he'll be talking to us about that book. His next project is going to focus on uh, the history of human rights during the post-World War II period. Well, glad to have you. Thanks, Bob. That's great. Thank you. <clears throat> Well, this is wonderful. Thank you so much, Bob. I want to thank you for, uh, for inviting me and for making this all possible. And um, it is great to be back in Ohio. Uh, I've been coming to the Columbus Airport for a, a long time, since the late 70s. And every time I come, it seems to get bigger and more sparkling. And Columbus seems to have changed since I was at Kenyon. Um, although Kenyon hasn't changed. Um, every time I go up there, I'm amazed that the clock stands still. And it still feels like about 1890 in some respects up there. But Columbus seems to be thriving. And I'm just... Um, very honored to be part of this uh, distinguished speaker series, which has, has brought so many uh, top-class people to uh, to Columbus and to the Marchand Center. So um, thanks very much to Bob, and also thanks to Jenny Siegel for making this happen. Jenny, Jennifer Siegel, uh, excuse me, um, is an old friend from uh, graduate school days, and uh, it's I, I would I would come um, anywhere that Jenny was at the drop of a hat. Um, so thanks to both uh, both of them and. It's, it's also very nice to see many old, <clears throat> distinguished, and, and uh, uh, mentors here. Carol Fink is here, who I've admired for many years. Jeffrey Parker is, uh, I'm, I'm honored by his uh, presence, and just wonderful to be here. All right, I'm going to talk about my recent book. I hope um, that it will um, interest you as you munch away on your sandwiches, um, though the topic, of course, is necessarily a little bit, a little bit gloomy. Um, I just wanted to first set out uh, a few, say a few words about why I chose to write this book. <clears throat> about the liberation of Europe, there are two reasons. The first is that I wanted to try a new kind of writing that I hadn't done before. And I'll just say parenthetically that I think it's okay to think about different styles of writing that you want to write. Uh, as I see a number of graduate students here thinking ahead, you don't always have to write the same kind of book over and over again. You can take some risks and take some new departures. And for me, this was a new departure. When I started this book in 2003, I had written two books. One was a monograph on French diplomatic history in the early Cold War, um, and the other was a large survey of European history since 1945, and I'd never written on World War II. I had never written on military history, per se, uh, when I started this book. Uh, both of my previous books had started in 1945 and had gone onward into the Cold War era, so I was pushing myself further back, although not very far, to be sure, just a, a year or so. 
while I was finishing the struggle for Europe, I realized that the chapter that I had liked writing best was the um, was the first one, the chapter that began in May 1945 as the war came to a close. And I had gathered an enormous amount of material on the summer of 1945. Um, and I realized that I wanted to, much of it didn't make it into the book, and I wanted to go back and really spend a long period of time looking at this extraordinary moment of transition, a transition between war and peace, a transition between occupation and liberation, a transition between tyranny and freedom. And in a sense, to try to break down that barrier that we often impose just because the, the war ends in Europe in May 1945, that's usually a closed parenthesis of one story and the opening parenthesis of another. I thought, what if you remove the parenthesis and unite these, these, this, uh, this period and look at it as one, as one whole? Um, so that's, uh, that's what I had tried to do. And I also hoped um, that I could write a book that included as much about the lived experience of European peoples as well as Allied soldiers as it did about great power politics. Indeed, I hoped to write a book that served to break down what I think is a somewhat arbitrary divide between, on the one hand, the grand strategy and diplomacy of the war, and on the other, the realities of the human experience at the grassroots level. This was my chief ambition, to integrate the two and to reveal connections between the politics of war and the human experience of liberation that I thought had largely been hidden in much of the preceding literature. But the second reason that I set out to write this book, and I think I just have to be honest with you because it it actually makes for a, a more interesting talk. I felt at the time that I started writing in 2003 just at a moment when the United States was beginning another war of liberation, as it was styled at the time, in Iraq. I really felt the United States and its leaders and its public had developed what I think of as a weirdly warped, ill-informed, and troubling conception about the liberation of Europe. And it had come to serve as a blanket justification for the use of force overseas. In the United States of 2003, the concept of a war of liberation had taken on enormous power the power, in fact, to stop an argument, to bring an argument to an end. American leaders at that time believed that liberation, as practiced in Europe in 1944 to 45, was a perfect model for leaders in 2003 to emulate. Why? Because, after all, there were certain facts that we knew to be true about the great war of liberation uh, that, that the U.S. and its allies had fought against Germany in Western Europe. Namely, that the liberation of Europe served as a great binding force bringing European peoples and Americans and their liberators together in a close embrace. We knew that to be a fact. We knew that America occupied Germany and swiftly cleared that country of pro-Nazi sentiments, imposing a harsh and severe occupation policy that worked to swiftly reform Germany. We knew that soldiers, soldiers imposed order on continental Europe as they liberated, bringing good government and justice back to a Europe in turmoil. And, of course, we knew that Americans did all this and also put an end to the most visible and ghastly manifestation of Hitler's genocidal regime, namely the torment of the Jews of Europe. We knew these things to be true, and so we knew that if we were to wage wars of liberation in the future, we could expect similarly positive results. But what if these things were not true? Might we be willing then to rethink the meaning of the term liberation? Is it possible that a war of liberation is, in fact, no less horrible no less violent, murderous, and cruel than a war of conquest? I'm sorry to say my book suggests that the answer is yes. Now, let me just preempt the obvious question. Am I suggesting that the liberation of Europe was not worth fighting or was in some way an unjust cause? No, of course not. 
What I want to argue is that our popular conception of liberation in Europe is largely mythical and that powerful myths have consequences, at least insofar as subsequent generations decide to build policy choices upon them. So what I'd like to do is to discuss four topics from my book that I think will help make my case. These are, first, the political and social significance of wartime violence that attended the liberation of Western Europe in the summer and fall of 1944. Second, the transformation of Germany's defeat Germany's defeat into something that the Germans were pleased to call liberation. An act of international leisure domain that was undertaken with frank complicity by Allied occupiers and German civilians together. Third, the place of humanitarian agencies and aid workers, that is, not soldiers, in restoring order and shape to Europe and uh, European civil society in the liberation period. And fourth, the bizarre, appalling, and morally opprobrious policy of the United States and Britain toward the liberated Jews of Europe. These, each of these four topics contains an argument, and each seeks to bridge that divide that we often impose between great power politics on the one hand and the wartime experiences of ordinary men and women on the other. Before I plunge in, though, just a, briefly at some historiographical context, when we write the history of World War II, what do we write about? generally speaking. Overwhelmingly, American and British historians of the Second World War write operational history, or some version of it. And much of this operational history is excellent. To name just a few categories, of course, there are the wonderful U.S. and British official histories of the war that are detailed um, and, and extraordinarily well-written and deeply researched. I've relied on them. We have a very able raft of, uh, of surveys by scholars such as Gerhard Weinberg or John Keegan or the, the, the Calva Caressi and Wint. Uh, co-authored big, big uh, volume. We have superbly crafted detailed operational military histories such as those written by the most distinguished historian ever to work at, at my university, at Temple University, Russ Wigley, his wonderful book, uh, Eisenhower's Lieutenants. And of course, the superb work by Alan Millett and Williamson Murray, A War to Be Won. And we have uh, extraordinarily talented, uh, hardworking uh, uh, journalists who, who write really well and do a lot of really good research. Um, Chester Wilmot is an, a much earlier version of this, but Max Hastings, Anthony Beaver, Rick Atkinson, these are really top-flight um, uh, writers and scholars. So it's, um, I, I, these are the kinds of works that we have available to us. We also have great work, too, on the social, political, and economic dimensions of the war. Scholars like Michael Sherry, Richard Overy, and earlier Alan Millward have, have really created a subfield of scholarship on the Second World War by focusing not so much on battlefield uh, operational history as um, the institutional, political, and economic dimensions of great powers at war. And, of course, there are countless biographies of generals and also an extraordinarily rich memoir literature, which is very useful for the historian but is necessarily quite a narrow um, uh, focus. So what's missing in this vast English language literature on the liberation of Europe? Well, simply put, the European people are missing, especially civilians. And this is odd, because historians of what we call war and society, the subfield of military history that focuses on war's social impact, have done so much good work on, for example, the, the U.S., the American Civil War, um, the social history of the First World War, an enormously rich literature on war and society in the First World War. I don't think World War II has been treated in this way uh, as fully. And um, on the whole, it seems to me European people are still missing from much of our Second World War historiography. Why? I'll digress for a moment. 
but it might be something we could come back to. Why, why have we missed it? I mean, I think some of my preliminary answers are, first, it's difficult. <laughs> it's hard work to get to Europe to do the kind of local grassroots research one has to do to make this kind of writing work. Second, I think that to the, to, the, to the extent that there is a large war in society literature on the civilian experience in the Second World War, much of it has been written and focused on the Holocaust, which is as it should be. But it, that has tended to focus a great deal of energies of an enormously talented, innovative group of historians on war and society in, uh, with, with relation to the Jewish experience, uh, which has left, uh, in a sense, a gap for those who, uh, for the war and society questions uh, and material that does not relate to the Holocaust. For those who write about social change during World War II, and here I'm thinking about, for example, the vast literature on Vichy France, the home front, and so forth, we still remain in a national framework. And much of the, if you like, the war and society literature on the the home front and resistance movements, culture, ideas, arts, resistance, and so on, still is, I think, much too much national-centered. So there's not a a transnational literature. And, of course, in in the United States, anyway, much of our World War II writing is driven by a somewhat heroic um, template um, and European civilians in the Second World War don't offer as many heroic stories as we might like. Uh, Europeans are seen as, and in fact are, often compromised by defeat, by weakness, by dependence, by complicity, by deceit, collaboration, all these difficult, complicated dimensions. And so they're often styled as victims, bystanders, or collaborators, and hardly the stuff of the ringing narrative of the Second World War that we are most comfortable with in this country, and that really does depend on moral clarity. So it's, it's awkward sometimes to write about European civilians in the war years. So I think we have a large, extensive World War II literature that is compromised by an inability to integrate the European civilian experience into the broad history of the war. To remedy this problem, I went to a number of archives and libraries and sources that I don't think military historians have used enough, and they should because it's enormously valuable material um, that one can find if one um, is willing to, to look for it. I worked in local archives in Normandy, France, going over the police and public health records of the département of Calvados in particular. I worked in Belgium going through archives of the ministries dealing with housing, food, clothing, and so forth for refugees. I read through private letters of French, Belgian, Dutch, and others who shivered and starved through the winter of 1944. I consulted hundreds of personal testimonies of Holocaust survivors who have spoken about their liberation and their experiences uh, in, the, in the latter days of the war. I used the original interviews done by the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey, uh, almost 4,000 individuals who were um, interviewed in great detail uh, to gauge German civilian attitudes towards the war and towards the post-war occupation. And I also worked in many collections of papers created by humanitarian relief organizations, which are a boon to international diplomatic historians who should use them much more regularly especially um, the records of UNRWA, which I'll talk about later, the UN uh, Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, but also the American Friends Service Committee, the Unitarian Friends Service Committee, the Red Cross, gold mines, absolute gold mines for uh, those of us trying to do this work. And, of course, I went to the Imperial War Museum and worked through the astonishing collections of letters and diaries of British soldiers, uh, and I've used the countless memoirs uh, and oral histories of uh, average citizen soldiers from the United States who fought in Europe during these terrible months of liberation. And all this material showed, showed me a side of the liberation that I hadn't seen before and that I tried to make into this book. And I'll give you my four uh, cases of areas in which I think we've really missed a big part of the story. The first surprise, we normally assume uh, that the liberation of Europe served to bring Americans and Europeans together. And what I found is it drove them apart. 
As I was reading through the letters and diaries of British soldiers at the Imperial War Museum, men who fought in Normandy in the summer of 1944, from D-Day right on to the end of the Normandy battle in late August, I kept coming across a common pattern. Many soldiers wrote that rather than being welcomed as heroes, they were actually received quite coldly by the French people. The reception was not hostile, but it was reserved. Said one British soldier, if we'd expected a welcome, we certainly failed to find it. The French people they encountered in Normandy were, quote, sullen and silent. It was rather a shock, said one corporal from the Highland Light Infantry, to find that we were not welcomed ecstatically as liberators by the local people, as we were told we would be. They, <laughs> they saw us as bringers of destruction and pain. At first, this didn't seem right to me, but this was just the kind of observation I found in many diaries and memoirs of the soldiers, a cool, distant reserve on the part of the French, at least in Normandy. Well, what explains this restrained response to the liberators, at least the first liberators? Well, if you look into the records of the local communities in Normandy and their experiences during the summer of 1944, the answer is not difficult to find. For many months before the D-Day landings, the coastline of Normandy had been pounded day and night by Allied air bombardment. And on the night of June 5, the night just before D-Day, the biggest air bombardment of the entire war up to that point was unleashed on the German coastal defenses in Normandy. But alas, not only Germans were hit. We now know that 3,000 French people died in the 24 hours following the landings of D-Day under these massive bombings. And that, incidentally, is, a, is, is about the same number of Allied servicemen who were killed on D-Day. It's important to make that point because there is a rough equivalence to French civilian deaths and Allied deaths on D-Day. We know we're so familiar culturally in our exposure to that moment, June 6, we imagine it to be the Holocaust, this extraordinary outpouring of, of, of blood, which it was for Allied um, soldiers storming ashore on the beach. But it was exactly the same for those civilians who, um, who were on, on, the, uh, on the shore already. And the picture only got worse. During the campaign in the summer of 1944 in Normandy, almost 20,000 French civilians died in the crossfire, mostly as a result of Allied air assaults on the towns and cities which the Germans were defending. And that, too, amounts to roughly the same number of U.S. soldiers that died in the Normandy campaign, 20,000. Again, a rough equivalence. Consider the tragic city of Caen, this old capital uh, of William the Conqueror, whose great Norman stone palace still sits in the middle of the town was a British objective on D-Day, but the British failed to take it and instead would spend all of June and July 1944 engaged in heavy fighting in and around the city. Caen, at the start of the Normandy battle, was home to 60,000 people, three Gothic churches, two large hospitals, and a great university. Um, all of this was obliterated in two months of savage fighting. Most of the city residents fled the town. 15,000 of them huddled in the dank uh, subterranean caves from the stone quarries a couple of miles south of town, living in filth and squalor for much of the summer. About 2,000 people were killed in Caen as a direct result of Allied bombing, which we, the Allied records show did very little to damage German defensive positions in any case. The lovely cathedral town of Lisieux, not too far from Caen, long a site of religious pilgrimages, suffered a similar fate, wiped out. During the Allied, uh, over 700 people died there. And on the list goes. Almost every village in Normandy was wrecked, totally shattered by Allied air assaults. Of course, the idea was to kill German soldiers, but the citizens of these quiet rural villages paid a heavy price, too. All of this damage necessarily had a negative influence on the reception of the liberators. In late July, when the British finally pushed into the destroyed city of Caen, a Benedictine nun, uh, whose, whose, whose diary is actually in the local archives in Calvados, recorded in her diary that the soldiers, quote, have been received in Caen without great enthusiasm. The residents have been too shaken by the memory of days of agony and mourning which we have experienced, and by all the civilian dead, by all the grief 
There was not on this day the joy that we might have had if the friends, and she put that word in quotation marks, had saved the women, the children, the old people. There has been too much suffering. Well, the situation doesn't improve if we reverse the, the, the angle of perspective. What did liberating soldiers think of these besieged and worn French people of Normandy? As it happens, not very much. The suffering of the French people of Normandy did not paradoxically endear them to their liberators. These civilians had taken to living in basements, bombed out buildings, rude shelters, and caves outside of Caen. They had no water. They had no sanitation. They had no clothing. They were filthy and in rags. They were hungry, scared, and destitute. And in American eyes, these bedraggled Normans seemed otherworldly, weird, even inhuman in the eyes of the liberators. Every village seemed dead, and the people looked like ghostly apparitions. Not at all the warm, pretty girls of the, 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 the Paris fashion magazines, which I'm sure they've been reading on their transports. Vieux Bocage was a sight I'll never forget, wrote one British trooper of a small ruined town. There was nothing but two heaps of rubble, which once were houses. The whole place was absolutely razed to the ground. Lisieux was, according to another soldier, absolutely flat. The words, uh, words can't describe the destruction. If a bomb had been placed in every house, the damage could not have been greater, he said. Town after town was in ruins and alongside the fields, of course, and you see this in every single memoir of the, of the campaign, Thousands and thousands of dead cattle all now rotting in the summer sun. These villages, wrote one soldier, stank of dead men and cattle. Amidst this wreckage, one soldier saw only a few elderly women in funereal black moving around the debris, some accompanied by children whose faces appeared equally ashen or dust gray. On the roads between the towns, refugees pushing wheelbarrows and carts looked dispirited and frightful. These are their words. Now, in a place so violently disordered by war, a place so lacking in civilized shape, it seemed perfectly normal for Allied soldiers to literally take possession, to take possession of property, livestock, clothing, boots, or any other objects that caught their fancy, and indeed a great deal of the, the avail most available uh, liquid form of refreshment, Calvados. One woman in Colombiere watched powerless as a unit of Canadians systematically looted her home, breaking open locked cupboards and trunks, even fighting over who got what. Hens, rabbits, and chickens were snatched up, destined for the evening campfires of the soldiers who quite literally took possession of the land they had fought to liberate. Now, these scenes come from locations in France where the fighting had been very fierce, the damage uh, very severe, and the casualties high. In Paris, of course, by contrast, there was no serious fighting, and miraculously, nor in Brussels, where Allied soldiers who arrived in late August and early September did, in fact, receive a stunning, rapturous welcome. And that is the welcome we're most familiar with because it was filmed in many of these, or photographed in many of these large capital cities. And I do want to stress that the picture I've painted here was not universal, but confined to the most battle-scarred locations. Yet even once the Allies got to Belgium, where they set up shop on the doorstep of Germany in the winter and spring of 1944-45, they were not exactly welcome. There was a huge outpouring of celebration in Brussels in September 44, but within a few short weeks, the reality of being occupied by a liberating army of, get this, over two million armed, scared, somewhat nervous, anxious, hungry teenagers started to register upon the Belgians. 
According to Belgian police records, not a single day went by without Allied soldiers getting into brawls in bars, accosting ladies on the street, breaking shop front windows, raucously demanding booze, and generally making a disturbance of themselves. And yes, soldiers sought out liaisons with ladies of the night on a regular basis with predictable consequences. By June of 1945, about 15% of all U.S. soldiers in Europe, nearly half a million men, had venereal disease. The Army wanted to close brothels, distribute condoms, and institute a sort of inspection on demand of Belgian women, a move that, as you can imagine, was not particularly popular with their host country, and the British government, the Belgian government and the Americans fought bitterly over, uh, over uh, uh, public health policy. Of course, the Belgian people were then, and still are, enormously grateful to Americans for their liberation. And everywhere you go in the Ardennes, uh, where Americans and Germans fought the Battle of the Bulge, you'll find uh, moving memorials and tributes and shrines uh, to the Allied sacrifice. But it's also true that at the time, Belgians were not always so friendly. Not only did many thousands of Belgian civilians die in the fighting during the Battle of the Bulge, but the prolonged U.S. occupation in eastern Belgium in that winter as they were poised to move into Germany stirred up a lot of tension and anger. And according to one local police commissioner, the phrase most often heard among Belgians by September 1945 was simply, Oh, Lord, deliver us from our liberators. My point here is that we cannot assume that war brought Europeans and Americans closer together in a warm, tight embrace. On the contrary, in these early stages of the liberation, it drove them apart. For all the goodness of their cause, Allied soldiers brought with them extraordinary violence and extreme destruction, and that shaped the memories of Europeans about this period for many years afterwards. Well, that leads me to the second surprising discovery that I um, have tried to stress in the book. American GIs <clears throat> liked the German people, their enemy, more than any other group of Europeans that they encountered during the liberation. This surprised me because I knew that in preparation for the occupation of Germany at the end of the war, the U.S. government and army had settled on a very harsh policy toward the German people, German public. The U.S. policy, as stated by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in September 1944, was this. Germany will not be occupied for the li purpose of liberation, but as a defeated enemy nation, quote-unquote. That was official U.S. policy in September 1944. It will not be occupied for the purpose of liberation. The U.S. and British military both gave very strict orders to their own liberating soldiers that Germans were off-limits. There could be no fraternizing, no handshaking, no speaking to German civilians at all, no removing of hats as a courtesy in public, only direct orders delivered in an imperious tone. The key words of Allied behavior in Germany were to be, quote, just, firm, and distant. The policy was meant to drive home the point that Germans were a defeated people, a guilty people, and international outcasts. These directives were confirmed in early planning at Yalta and Potsdam. This policy of non-fraternization was driven home to Allied soldiers in a series of pamphlets, radio spots, and posters telling servicemen things like, soldiers wise don't fraternize. Or this radio spot that was carried on Armed Forces Radio. That frau going to market may look harmless enough. The odds are she walks in a dead woman's shoes, sent from the furnaces of Maidenek. Don't forget that in a hurry. Steer clear. Don't fraternize. Or don't be misled into thinking of Germans. Oh, well, they're human. So is a murderer. So is a cannibal. The German people have loved war too long. Let them see it doesn't pay. Show them clearly don't fraternize. 
But what I found was that this official policy of reserve disappeared almost overnight. Within days of their arrival in Germany, U.S. soldiers were chatting with Germans, bartering with them, sometimes drinking and dancing with them, and also helping them to rebuild their homes, start water supplies, clear roads, procure foodstuffs, and supplies. What explains this swift turnaround in U.S.-German relations at the grassroots level? One important factor was the intense saturation bombing that Germany had experienced during the last two years of the war, I think. This bombing had started in earnest toward the end of 1943 and reached unprecedented fury in March of 1945. In that month alone, the U.S. 8th Air Force and RAF dropped 133,000 tons of bombs on Germany, the largest total for any single month, and about 10% of the entire tonnage dropped on Germany during the war. This, this bombing, 2.7 million tons of it, destroyed 3.6 million homes and dwellings and killed at least half a million people. We still don't really know exactly, perhaps more. Allied bombing of Germany wounded an additional 800,000 people and left 7.5 million homeless. Civilians who were caught under this rain of bombs, of course, died in gruesome ways, whether hit by collapsed buildings, burned by incendiary weapons, suffocated in air shelters, or simply vaporized by direct hits. To the American soldier, the moral issue, should the Allies have bombed German cities, was irrelevant. They would have answered, of course. It was the way to win the war. But to the men who arrived on German soil in the last few months of the war and who then occupied the country in 1945, the bombing served also as a kind of evening out of the score sheet. To the GIs in Germany who gazed upon the shattered, burnt ruins of Germany, it looked like the Germans had suffered enough for their sins. No harsh occupation was required, they felt, to bring home the lessons of the war to the German people. The bombers had already done that. The obvious suffering of the German people was not lost on the young U.S. soldiers. Time magazine reporter Sidney Olson, writing from Cologne, wrote that Allied soldiers who had exulted over 1,000 plane assaults and 3,500-ton bomb loads could now see for themselves what strategic bombing had achieved. Olson described this scene. A mud-stained veteran stared with dazed eyes at the desolation around him, murmuring over and over, ain't it awful, ain't it awful. A London Times correspondent wrote that Cologne is a dead city, silent as the grave and full of the grit and dust that swirl from the hillocks of rubble. As for the inhabitants, it seems a little foolish to talk of the attitude of the people. So far as one could judge, theirs is the numb bewilderment of any people who have survived a cataclysm and are down to the clothes they stand in. Ben Hibbs of the Saturday Evening Post wrote, Cologne is finished, I should imagine, literally erased from the map forever. Such devastation made the Americans more sympathetic to the German people. Said the commanding officer of one battalion, when I see two or 3,000 old and fear-crazed and feeble women and kids with all their belongings and their houses and futures all shot to hell, I can't help but feel pity. We have no qualms about knocking down a city, but we do have pity for the old and weak. The problem, of course, was that sympathy opened the way to forgiveness, and it was not long before Americans were looking the other way and generally helping the Germans sweep under the rug much of what had transpired inside Germany during the war. But there's another reason that explains the rapid thaw between the American GIs and the German people in the summer of 1945. Put simply, U.S. soldiers liked the Germans, especially female Germans, and the feeling was mutual. A Stars and Stripes reporter saw American soldiers near Aachen uh, in the fall of 1944, uh, uh, helped German housewives with their chores, play with children, and through other acts of friendship, make living more tolerable through the creation of a friendly atmosphere. In the eyes of the GI, the Germans fared well when compared to the French. I love this line. One Said one trooper, 
of the Germans, these people are cleaner and, and a damn sight friendlier than the frogs. They're our kind of people. Naturally, it wasn't just elderly Germans the GIs wanted to meet. A report from the Psychological Warfare Division put the issue quite bluntly. Quote, to a man bored and fed up with a company of other men, almost anything in skirts is a stimulant and a relief. And German women were not just skirts. They were undeniably attractive in a wholesome, physical, sexy way. They were what the boys called easy. GI and Fraulein were magnet and steel. Quote, unquote. American troops now fanning out into the cities and towns of Germany and setting up barracks and camps as part of the occupation administration found German women willing to spend time in the company of GIs in exchange for luxuries that every GI carried around in their backpack. Tin food, cigarettes, chocolate, soap, pens, paper, and astonishing amounts of alcohol. It was a match made in heaven, and from this grassroots, friendship developed a much larger reconciliation of nations. But there was a pernicious dimension to this story. The swift reconciliation between Western Germans and the U.S. and British soldiers allowed Germans to transform their defeat into liberation. Rather than emphasize their own culpability and their own defeat, they were able fairly quickly to establish a counter-narrative. The counter-narrative had the Allied soldiers liberating Western Germany from what? From the war itself and its privations. From the fear of bombing, and from the prospect of enslavement and sexual assault at the hands of the Russians. Interviews with German civilians all across Western Germany carried out by the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey made it plain that Germans were eager to welcome Americans because they both agreed to style the events of the summer of 45 as a liberation, a concept toward which both sides gladly converged rather than emphasize the burdens of occupation and defeat. The Germans made the Americans feel welcome because these soldiers brought an end to the war. The, the Americans, in turn, forgave the Germans quickly because, as one soldier put it, the girls throw themselves at you if you give them half a chance. By the fall of 1945, the U.S. and U.K. occupation forces, with German civilians at their side, joined together as partners in a hasty labeled new war. We've had the, we've had the Battle of Britain and the Battle of Stop France, the Battle of Stalingrad. The new war was the Battle of Winter in which all sides, Germans included, worked feverishly to clothe, feed, and shelter German civilians. By the end of 1945, Allied occupiers in Germany were toiling harder than they had ever done in France or in Belgium or in Holland or in Italy to make the German people feel warm, safe, and secure in the winter of 1945. A good story, perhaps, but not at all what was intended. And this rapid kind of reconciliation made it that much more difficult once the war was over to hold the German people accountable for their wartime actions. These were the same Germans, after all, who had welcomed Hitler, cheered his triumphal marches, given him adulation as his armies crashed into Poland, France, and Russia. Much of this was rapidly forgotten by soldiers and civilians who both shared a common aim of suppressing the past. All right, so it may not be surprising to find that these somewhat negative dimensions of the liberation have been minimized in our histories of the war's end. I have found it surprising and puzzling to discover that one of the great success stories is also missing from some of our um, most popular histories of the war, namely the dimension of, of humanitarian relief. This is my third topic. My argument here is that many of the successes of human restoration and recovery that took place in liberated Europe once the fighting had come to an end should not, in fact, be credited to the military alone. 
but to the massive global relief effort undertaken by government and private groups that converged on Europe in the summer of 1945 and did a great deal to restore a semblance of life and humanity to this war-ravaged continent. At the close of the war in May 1945, there were nearly 8 million forced laborers, men and women, dragooned from all across Europe, toiling inside Germany on behalf of the German war effort. They worked in factories and farms and munition plants and clothing factories and chemical plants and foundries and so forth, um, all related to the war effort on behalf of Germany. Foreign laborers accounted for 26% of the total German workforce, and a third of these captives were women. Most came from the East, two two and a half million Soviets, one and a half million Poles, one and a half million French, about half a million each of Belgians, Dutch, and Italians. In addition to this, there were perhaps three million prisoners of war also incarcerated in Germany at the war's end. Even before the fighting had ceased in the spring of 1945, these 11 million people started on the long, arduous journey home. In most cases, with no resources, no transport, no food, no water, just the ragged clothes on their backs and a burning desire to get out of Germany. This sudden flood of displaced persons, or DPs, constituted the largest and fastest human migration in European history, though it would soon be rivaled by the almost simultaneous expulsion of ethnic Germans from Eastern Europe, which was just about to unfold. The DP crisis, the displaced persons crisis, and it was a crisis, might have become an enormous calamity 11 million hungry, angry, marauding DPs with very large chips on their shoulders passing through a defeated and lawless Germany could have produced a social crisis of enormous scope and also led to a humanitarian disaster. That it did not is due to the foresight of allied planners as well as the work of relief organizations from across the world that gave heroic effort to impose a kind of order on this migration while also offering clothing, epidemic disease prevention, food and water, and solace to these angry multitudes of DPs. Now, the principal agency, grad students, write this down. The principal agency that handled the DP crisis was called UNRWA, United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, created in late 1943, the result of conversation between Dean Acheson and his British counterpart, Sir Frederick Leith Ross. It was funded, UNRWA, by contributions from over 40 allied nations, uh, though, in fact, 80% of its work was paid for by the U.S. and Britain. Its purpose was to follow in the wake of the liberating armies and provide humanitarian assistance to liberated peoples where there was the most acute need. Why did Allied planners concern themselves with such assistance? As Acheson himself said in an interview in December 1943, it is just as important to be prepared for the emergency that will come when the fighting is over as it is to be prepared for the victorious drives that will end in Berlin and Tokyo. It would be a hollow victory indeed, he said, that brought with it famine and disease in large parts of the world and economic chaos that would inevitably engulf us all. So the U.S. and U.K. governments conceived of UNRWA as a stopgap, a sort of gigantic soup kitchen for European DPs, but also as a processing agency that would collate and register millions of displaced persons so as to impose order on to these massive population flows. Hundreds of UNRWA camps were erected across Europe to register DPs, to decontaminate DPs with enormous doses of, uh, of, of uh, DDT, you know, uh, white powder put all over their bodies and their clothing, to provide clothing and feeding and send them on their way. For harder cases, mostly Poles and Balts who didn't want to go back to their homelands since they were now occupied by the Soviets, UNRWA set up long-term camps And some of these remained in operation for years after the war. 
Amazingly, no historian has ever written a book about UNRWA. And this quite uh, extraordinary experiment in international cooperation and humanitarian relief. And despite the fact that there is an UNRWA archive just packed with unread documents, all of which is grassroots reporting from the ground on the DP and uh, humanitarian crisis of, um, of Europe in the, in the, at the end of the war. I won't go into any further uh, details on the operation of UNRWA, but I do think its presence in Europe, in liberated Europe, is important. It reveals, UNRWA reveals that Allied planners in 1945 understood liberation to require not only the defeat of the Germans, but also the restoration of civil society. From 1943 onward, humanitarian relief was integrated into the Allied conception of war making. We have to discover this lesson for our own selves every year, every, 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 every war we undertake. We seem to forget the lessons of the Second World War, that the construction of civil society is a critical dimension of liberation. We are still just, just relearning this lesson in Afghanistan. We have a counterinsurgency manual, 90% of which is focused on the creation of civil society. It's an excellent document. But had we known more about the UNRWA experience, had we incorporated it into our histories of the Second World War, perhaps we wouldn't have had to relearn these lessons um, starting from scratch. Liberation to be successful demands more than just killing the enemy. It also requires prompt attention to the needs of war victims. The Allied powers took this to heart in 1945. And the fact that this massive effort has been overlooked in the historical literature, I think, reveals how insistent we are on seeing the liberation only as a feat of arms. I'll close by drawing your attention to a fourth example of a major development in the final days of the war that has also been, well, written out, frankly, of most of our histories of the liberation. <clears throat> it is perhaps the most surprising and incomprehensible um, absence of all. Uh, the failure of Allied armies to liberate and fully set free hundreds of thousands of Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. It is, of course, commonplace to depict the liberation of Europe as bringing about, however belatedly and inadequately, the rescue of surviving European Jews from further torment and destruction. Yet it is not as widely known as it should be that the liberation of Europe brought about nothing of the kind. In mid-1945, Jews were released from one kind of torment, but they were not yet able to find security and freedom. The reason for this is that liberated Jews, mostly from Poland and the Baltic states, refused to return to their blood-soaked homelands, for their families, homes, synagogues, and towns had been eradicated during the war. And the communist-controlled regime in post-war Poland offered them little solace or encouragement. Many Jews hoped that with the war over, they could travel either to the United States or more likely to British-controlled Palestine to join the fledgling Jewish settlement there and begin a new life. But the American government refused to accept any large influx of Jewish survivors into the United States. And the British government closed off the hope of emigration to Palestine, fearful that additional Jewish arrivals in Palestine would anger local Arabs and create instability, which indeed it probably would have. So the Jews who had survived Hitler now faced a new obstacle to freedom, U.S. and British official policy. With an uncertain and gloomy future, Jewish survivors freed from the death camps simply settled down in Germany itself and waited. At first 50,000, then 100,000. Thank heavens that's not mine. 
Then as many as 250,000 European Jews came in to occupy Germany in 1945 and 1946 and sought out the temporary protection of the Allied occupying armies. With the support of the American and British armies, Jews built refugee camps or converted camps once used by the Germans to house prisoners, including Belsen. And they waited. It's hard to believe, but in the months and years after May 1945, thousands of Jews continued to live in camps in the heart of the country that had caused them so much torment without any idea of what the future held for them. To be sure, this is also a story of resilience and courage. Inside these Jewish encampments, thousands of Jews managed to create a kind of normalcy. They founded Jewish newspaper, Yiddish newspapers like the Landsberger Lager Zeitung, uh, and schools and libraries, workshops, musical concerts, orchestras. There was a sense of political activity, too. Elections were held. Politics were debated. There was a... Um, David Ben-Gurion, in October 1945, toured the camps, declaring his intention to win the release of these refugees and get them into Palestine. In fact, we know that Ben-Gurion had no intention of getting them out of camps because they served such a useful political purpose for him, but that's what he said. I'll get you out, don't worry. And yet, until 1948, most of them remained in this strange semi-captivity in the heart of occupied Germany. The reality of Jews in camps in U.S. and British-occupied Germany is not, I assure you, a prominent feature of most writing on the Allied liberation of Europe. Primo Levi has given memorable expression of the impact that this limbo had on Jews in 1945. And I just want to say that the book, that, uh, the, the, his book, The Reawakening, which is also called The Truce, and it's about this, it starts from his liberation from Auschwitz and carries on in the year that it took him to get back to Italy, for me was the book that made me, that brought me to this topic. It's the book that's, that inspired me to write this book uh, from the very beginning. It's, it's one of the, the, great, the great works of, of literature that I'm, uh, uh, of this period and really any period. But Levy uh, recounts in that book his, his emotions on that extraordinary day when the gates of Auschwitz, Auschwitz were finally torn open by Russian soldiers in January 1945, allowing him to go free. But free? Where? How? He had no idea what the future held for him. He described the emotions among the few survivors still in that camp in January 1945 in these words. For us, even the hour of liberty rang out grave and muffled and filled our souls with joy and yet with a painful sense of shame so that we should have liked to wash our consciences and our memories clean from the foulness that lay upon them. And also with anguish, because we felt that this should never happen, and now nothing could ever happen, good and pure enough to rub out our past, and the scars of the outrage would stay with us forever. Face to face with liberty, we felt ourselves lost, emptied, atrophied, unfit for our part. Primo Levi's anguish at the moment of liberation was due not only, of course, to his physical condition and his humiliation, but also due to the fact that he had no idea what to do now that the gates of Auschwitz had been opened. The Russian troops literally pulled down the gates and then left, leaving these survivors to fend for themselves in the middle of an ice-cold winter in the middle of Poland, with no resources or knowledge or friends of any kind. Levy continues, liberty, the improbable, impossible liberty, so far removed from Auschwitz that we'd only dared to hope for it in our dreams, had come. 
but it had not taken us to the promised land. It was around us, but in the form of a pitiless, deserted plain. More trials, more toil, more hunger, and more cold, more fears awaited us. For Levi and for hundreds of thousands of Jews, the promise brought by the Allied armies in April had turned sour by the end of 1945. For most of them, this awkward limbo would endure until 1948, when, at last, the final leg of their journey ended on the shores of an independent Israel. After an additional four years or more of semi-captivity in the heart of liberated Germany. Well, let me conclude my talk with just a very brief con uh, closing words. I want to stress that whatever the awful price of liberation, Europeans in 1945, just like Europeans today, were deeply grateful for the liberation that Americans, British, Canadians, and many other Allied soldiers delivered to them. I want to stress that, and it's a big part of the book. But once we've said that, we have to go a little further and a little deeper. The liberated peoples of Europe tasted no glory during the great battles that returned their freedom to them, and this is why, I think, the entire attitude of post-war Europe has been so averse to waging foreign war, especially wars styled liberation. For Europeans who lived through liberation, the term actually carries a heavy weight. It's not something to be undertaken lightly. We can all agree that World War II was undeniably a just war that had to be fought. We will always honor the 400,000 Americans who died in that conflict to bring freedom to others. However, as we are in this room, teachers and custodians of the history of, of this war, we have an obligation, I think, to include in the history of that war, all wars, those elements which are shameful, which are wrong, which are stupid, and which are murderous. I think we have to be brave enough to tell the story of this war with honesty and, in fact, with the same kind of honesty that so many veterans of the Second World War show when they write their memoirs, when they give oral history interviews, when they break down weeping because they can't recount the horror of what they saw. If these guys can do it, surely we can do it also. We can write a complete history, a complete history of the war, that incorporates the whole range of human experience in wartime, along with a focus on operational history as well as great power um, politics and grand strategy. In writing this book, I tried to bear in mind the words of the great historian, C.V. Wedgwood, who herself worked as a, a war, a, a aided refugees of Britain during the Second World War, and whose epic narrative, The Thirty Years' War, remains one of the great classics of narrative history. She put it this way, and I'll just close with her words. One of the tasks of the political historian is to show the repercussions of policy on the lives of the governed and to arouse in the reader imaginative sympathy, imaginative sympathy with those multitudes of fellow beings who were victims as well as actors in the events of the past. Well, thanks very much for your patience, and I'd love to uh, have a questions and a conversation with you about it. Thanks. Shall I just uh, to, to go? Yeah. Yes, sir. Now, when you talk a little bit more about the idea of liberation, uh, it seems to me that it could be argued the United States and Britain and Canada and so forth didn't go to war for liberation, but to get rid of what they considered to be a perceived threat. And 
so therefore the liberation idea is sort of a feel-good thing that would be embedded later. Yeah. I agree with that. I agree with that analysis. However, um, wars are dynamic and they, they take on a character of, of their own once they begin. So you're quite right that uh, to defeat Hitler's tyranny, uh, barbarism, and its assault on civilization was a principal aim of the, of the war. And to reply to a sneak attack, we were talking about this yesterday. Um, that, so yeah, yeah, sure. But once you've said that, you also need to say, what, no, no, we know what we're fighting against, what are we fighting for? And so the language of liberation and of reconstruction started to really take hold, especially as it became clear from, from the time I began this book in, in 19, late 1944, that the war would be won. That the war would be won and Germany would not be left a smoldering ruin and a wreck, but that there would be a new Europe at the end of it. So Europe was going to be transformed and rebuilt and reconstructed and liberated with European help, well, one hoped, but that there would not be a third world war uh, having had just had two in, uh, in one generation. There was a sense of purpose that was greater than simply destroying Nazism, but also bringing about a transformation in the international system as well as in Europe so that this kind of legacy could be finally stamped out. I think you make a good point, though, which is that the language of liberation is not necessarily present at the beginning of the Second World War. And it, Americans, I think, come to it through their leaders, principally, um, but also as the degree of mobilization takes root, as the, the, the size of the transformation on the home front takes root, as it becomes clear that this is going to be an epic contest of enormous proportions. Payback for December 7 alone, say, isn't enough. It has to be a broader uh, ambition, and that's where the language of liberation starts to take on such an appealing uh, meaning. However, it's also a post-war phenomenon as well, and here I think is the, the gist of your, your point, you're right. Um, we've probably tended to erode the... Uh, power politics dimension of the war a little bit in our own popular memory and focused on liberation because it's something that we can comprehend perhaps uh, more readily. Uh, I don't know who to choose first. To uh, such honorable gentlemen. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, attitude of the French sort of reminds me of the attitude of the Iraqis when we went in 2003. Thank you for our liberation. Now, now get out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to come to grips with... Um, you know, why the Germans would be more receptive to the U.S. presence than the French. And um, I, I think um, <coughs> an example from the Pacific War is instructive in this case, and that's the liberation of the Philippines, hmm. which my own research shows that the Filipinos, despite having suffered heavily in, uh, in both the occupation and the liberation, were deeply grateful to the U.S. troops for, uh, for their liberation. Yeah. The Japanese and I'm, I'm coming to the conclusion that the greater that a population suffers from war, the more happy they are to be relieved from it. And this might explain why the Germans and the Filipinos were much more happy to see U.S. soldiers on their soil than the French, who did really suffer in the in 1940. That and wasn't comparable. Yeah. Was sort of just there. Yeah. And I also didn't have a, a real role in their own liberation, unlike the Filipinos who, who took to the hills in great numbers in guerrilla warfare. Yeah. So, Having a role in your own liberation makes you feel part of the enterprise. And I'm just wondering what you're Yeah. Well, I'm just glad you said it <laughs> because I agree with you. Um, but I've been very uh, hesitant about drawing what seems like actually perhaps a, a, an important conclusion, which is the greater the, the, the suffering, the greater the violence, the more severe the social transformation, the more pain, the more, frankly, the more death and destruction, um, the, in a sense, 
the easier it is to begin to wipe the slate clean and begin a process of reconciliation. Now, as a policy, uh, uh, the policy conclusions that you might draw from this, you mentioned Iraq, well, we didn't bomb them enough. We didn't, there wasn't enough damage. There wasn't enough devastation. The war was too quick. It was too painless. So there wasn't a sense that there was no alternative. In Germany, 1945 is no alternative. You know, you go through, as you, I know you know this, you go through the, the, the documents from the end of the war and you see how much they were concerned about werewolf and about there was going to be a German underground resistance movement. There was going to be long, you know, the, the national redoubt. There was going to be all this fighting and, and none of it ever, really ever happened. Very, very little. Because the ideological underpinnings of the German Nazi regime had been completely repudiated and destroyed and the country had been brought to a total standstill. See, and I think in, in Iraq, that the country doesn't get to that point until after the Civil War in yeah, 2006. Right. And, it, yeah. and so in 2003, the liberation narrative <coughs> doesn't take hold. And in 2007, it, it, it sort of plays in a different way in that um, people are just so happy to be, have some way out of the sectarian violence yeah. destroyed the society in 2006 that they, they start to make a little bit of headway uh, in, in the political realm. But yeah. uh, I, I think there's something to this theory. It might be worth an article or something. It, it would be an unpopular article, I'm afraid, but I think you're right. And I, th I think this is a very interesting, and actually you mentioned the cases that you mentioned as perhaps one could build in a comparative case uh, would be terrific. Um, uh, I, I would say, though, that um, we oughtn't underestimate the, the, the nature of French or for that matter, Belgian or Dutch uh, privation during the war. It's, n it's quite different, on a, not on the same scale as what happened in Germany. But I just couldn't let, it, let your comment pass that you know, the occupation was essentially a kind of just a, a, a bad night's sleep for France. I mean, it was, it, especially by the end of the, uh, by the time of, of June 1944, it had really begun to bite very, very hard on French uh, civil, civil, by civilians. Contrast, in the Philippines, the Japanese were it's not comparable. So you're, you're, I mean, well, I mean, there were plenty of reprisals, but but what but I'd like to know it's is, not. Yeah. Did you do any research on, uh, on the Netherlands because they did suffer very greatly over the yeah. hunger winter of 44, they did. 45. Were they any more receptive then to Allied troops coming in? Chapter three: The politics of food. Um, it's a it's a it's a also a story not well integrated into the general picture because the war starts goes takes a takes a right turn <laughs> goes into Germany uh, so I talked about that decision the Churchill Eisenhower decision and, and Joint Chiefs to say you know Churchill is getting tons of pressure from the Dutch exile and government um, saying look you know northern northern Europe northern Netherlands is, uh, is is still under German occupation and people are dropping dead in the streets we may have a million people dead by the time you guys get there to get to Berlin what are you going to do about it and the Dutch Prime Minister is, 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 is constantly an irritant in Churchill's face, saying you have to do something. There has to be airdrops. There has to be something. And Churchill is receptive to this. He says, well, good God, what if we win the war and a million Dutch, Dutchmen die because we didn't get there soon enough or because we didn't do enough? Is there something we could do? And there are hurried debates as to whether, frankly, the, the, the war plan should be changed so that they should keep going north, try to get across the... Um, the Scheldt estuaries and get up into the, into the northeastern part, northwest, the northwestern part of, of the Netherlands, liberate that, and let the German campaign uh, wait a bit. Eisenhower is thinking, oh, I can't believe these guys are getting in my face about this, but uh, you know, I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a plan. And he gives them a plan, and it's, uh, it shows that it's going to cost enormous resources of manpower material to get up into Holland to clear. The, to get across where the Canadians are fighting and doing a perfectly okay job. They debate it, and finally, they do begin a process of aerial drops into Holland quite late in April. Um, but it's amazing what political 
impact that has, even though uh, the amount of food that is dropped, air, airdropped into, into the Netherlands in April is very small. It becomes a significant symbol of Allied commitment to the civilian suffering in, in Holland. And once the war does end in early May, it's discovered that while perhaps 15 to 16,000 Dutch people did starve to death in the hunger winter of uh, spring 45, it was nothing like the millions that the Dutch had predicted and feared. So that's good. And on top of that, it's the Canadians that liberate uh, northwestern the Netherlands, and the reception that they get is absolutely fabulous. And it's, you know, I, I learned all this in, in doing this research. It was not known to me, but the, the Canadian-Dutch relationship is intimately premised upon that act of liberation. They see the Canadians as their liberators. And uh, you know, every year there are public ceremonies and uh, uh, sort of Canada-Netherlands friendship commissions and whatnot. So it's a, it's a side story, not critical really to the great story of the military history of the war. But because of the suffering, the liberation came that, as that, that much greater, I guess. So that's your point. I think it probably would... Uh, support your point. Sorry, that was a long answer. Jeffrey, please. <coughs> yes, I first would like to thank you for a terrific talk, uh, as always. Also, I'd like to thank Jennifer for staging it in a very significant week. Uh, uh, 70 years ago yesterday, the German armies crashed into France, Holland, and Belgium. Uh, 65 years ago on the 7th, the unconditional surrender. And 50 years ago today, we arrested our appointment. This is a great week. It's a good week. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, um, and uh, I can only say that I um, uh, I don't have a good ex excuse for why not, except that um, I guess I mean my my first book had focused so much on French German relations, and I and I had done quite a bit of, of work on the French zone of occupation uh, in the decade after the war, but not exactly on that topic. And um, what you say. Um, Makes me wish it was, wasn't already in, pr in print. I, I'd like to. I'd like to add to this. Second edition. There's always hope. Um, I think, and here, you know, grad, keen graduate students. I, I think that the French uh, occupation of Germany remains a, a, for those interested in the, in the subject of European international relations, uh, totally understudied. It's a relatively small zone of occupation. They barely get it. Uh, only, only uh, towards the very end are they included in the occupation regime largely thanks to Churchill, who felt, well, I need, I need a counterweight in France. In, in Europe, I've got to have a, a respectable French state. They need a, a zone of occupation. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I didn't work on that dimension too much. Um, but I think one can understand, perhaps, why. Uh, I mean, it's not to justify it, but... Uh, also, there's just so much other awful stuff to focus on <laughs> in this period, and what's going on in the East uh, is so dramatic. So there are, there are a lot of pockets that I didn't fully cover and, and focus on, and that's, that's certainly one of them. Um, future, future editions, future work to be done on that. Where should I go? Yes, please.
Oh, yeah. Um, well, good for you. I'm sorry, who was that? I don't know that name. Okay. Okay, yeah, good. Oh, yeah, from the First World War, yeah. Ah, yeah. I can. I don't end in 46. That's too narrow. I don't know where you started. You covered the First World War too? Oh, I see. Okay, sorry. Your dissertation advisor will kill me. Um, the reason that Unright gets written out, and, and Bob, with your work at Atchison, you may know this all better than I do, but Unright is actually seen as a failure by the United States government and by the United States military, which views these do-good uh, soup ladlers as a big pain in the neck. So actually what I was doing is not only introducing Unright into the literature, I think, of liberation, but also re- rehabilitating its, its reputation, which is not very strong. It was seen as a big waste of money. Uh, it delivered its aid in a fairly unstrategic manner. I mean, uh, DDT dusting and soup ladles, uh, but done by volunteers, volunteers half of whom were women in the honor organization who had no particular experience of uh, public health issues, um, barely knew how to, they couldn't fix a truck if it broke down in the mud, as they often did. I mean, there was a lot of problems with, at the delivery point of delivery. The Army was thoroughly frustrated by these guys. They had a whole divi- you know, division, G5, to deal with civil, civil affairs. Um, and they also always felt put upon that they had to give UNRWA supplies and give them space at the table and so forth. So UNRWA gets pushed out, literally, at, as, it's, as it's coming into its own, people start to begin to cast aspersions on whether it's worth having. And the second reason, I think, is that when the American and, and allied powers really do uh, get going on, on European relief efforts, in 1947-48, what will become the, the Marshall Plan, uh, Atchison, Clayton, and others say, whatever we do, we're not doing UNRWA again. UNRWA was, a, was the problem, so let's come up with a model that's different from that. We don't want amateurism. We don't want just to throw money at the problem. We have to have an integrated economic revival strategy, and that becomes the much more sophisticated uh, economic plan of the Marshall Plan. I think that's a mistake to overlook what I think of as the human dimension. And the reason I say that is because in many of the, in the UNRWA papers, you see UNRWA officials on the ground in Yugoslavia or in northern France or in Italy or in Greece literally being the first people who were foreign, who were not trying to kill local inhabitants that they'd seen in six years. That's not to be underestimated. It's it's, it's a, it may be a small thread, that we, but I, I think it's an important one. The, the nature of humanitarian relief at, at this moment, of 44, 45, in some cases before the war had even ended, um, perhaps it was only a, a small gesture, but I think it went a long way to beginning to cement a relationship between liberating powers and the occupied countries in, in southern and, and western Europe, uh, the liberated countries, 
that would then blossom into the post-war relationship. And many, many individuals have given quite moving testimony about what it was like to have an UNRWA officer give them a suit of clothes and a new pair of shoes for the first time in, in four or five years. What do we do with that as international historians work on military affairs and international policy? I, that's what I struggled with in the book. I, I, I really struggled. How do I piece these apparently very different kinds of sources and experiences together? You know, you have to be a judge if I succeed. In some cases, I think I just sort of glued them together. But I tried to make an argument that there was a connection between the two. Um, I do think, in general, military historians and international historians of post-war Europe have overlooked... And this is true, um, you, you have a great topic, uh, I think true of the First World War as well, have, have overlooked the, um, the non-military ways in which restoration, recovery, reconstruction uh, take place. So what amount, what we call now NGOs, the, 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 the birth of the NGO movement is, is there in the immediate post-World War I era, but I think it really takes on a dramatically new dimension in the post-World War II era. UNRWA gets broken up into a lot of agencies, as you know, it's a fascinating story, which we can talk more about. Um, yes, sir? Yeah. Well, I mean, um, I think it's a kind of, a, you know, a zero hour. It, it, what does it mean? It means it means the, the beginning of one, the end of one experience and the beginning of another. The beginning is something new. Fair enough. There's no question that what ends in May 8, 1945, is an odious, horrible exterminationist, genocidal regime, and what begins is the beginning of. Uh, what will become a democratic, stable Germany. So in a, ma- in a macro sense, of course, it makes quite a lot of sense to think of May 48 as zero hour. But if you've done what I've done, which is to zero in right onto the ground and say, well, how was your life different on May 1 versus May 10? The fact is it was not much different if you were German, um, in, in, in the, in, at least in the western part of the country, and for many other Europeans. So it becomes an artificial divide. I'll just say I think one of the things that you know historians can do more of is to try to get rid of these if you see a if you see a, 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 a typical conventional parenthesis put around anything, see if you can't break it up into bits, recalibrate it, because human experience isn't divided into pockets like that. Historians do that, so you can you can remake it if you want. So I I don't I, I don't like zero hour much. Yes, sir. Let me just say that, that just to get to de Gaulle, de Gaulle's a pain in the neck, okay. But if you were a Frenchman in 1940, you were pretty glad to have a guy who stood up and said, you know what, the war's going on, and we're going to keep fighting it for the next four years. Did he have a massive ego? Was he a, was he a, a, a terrible prima donna? Of course he was. Was he one of a very small number of people of an elite level um, who stood up in 1940 and said, well, I'm damned if I'm going to give in? Yes. So let's give him, give him a little credit for that. 
Did he fight with Churchill like crazy? Yes. Did Churchill, did he say, it was the heaviest cross I ever had to bear was the cross of Lorraine? Yes. But um, nonetheless, uh, I don't think we should dismiss de Gaulle in caricatured terms. Um, to a large extent, he's the father of post-1945 France, whether you like it or not. And he has all of the failings and peculiarities of, of, uh, of French uh, amour pop, but there it is. As for what did the average soldier think of the French, I'm not so sure. I think your, your characterizations are, 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 I think one could find evidence for that. You know, the French, here we are again, bailing them out. They, they've lost the war. They're such joke, just a joke of an army, yada, yada. But by 1944, I don't think there's a lot of jocularity in the ranks. Um, I mean, this is what surprised me, looking, trying to get as close as I could to the, to the, to the moment, not looking ahead and not looking at these events through the lens of the last 60 years. Um, most soldiers whose experience, who put their experiences on record, and that's a very small number, just hated every moment of what they were doing. It was awful. And so if they, if they were uncomfortable and people were not nice to them, they didn't like those people. <laughs> the French had their reasons for giving them a, a, a difficult re- reception. Um, but I don't think that's predestined because that's French culture and that's American culture. These are great clashes. No. And in fact, there are many countervailing uh, uh, stories of, of relationships that were struck up through a, a common need to survive this transition between the war and the peace. Um, so again, perhaps, and this is something of the answer, same answer to the previous question. Big picture, there are tensions, of course, and there are many tensions at the at the policy level that are quite real about what kind of government, who's going to rule, is there going to be a military occupation of France? That question wasn't settled till October, forty-four. But on the ground, I don't think that those are the main concerns. On the ground, it's where do I get cigarettes? Uh, what do I have to do to survive, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe one more question, and then we'll close things up. Yes. I found a really interesting parallel between your book and the Korean experience. Uh huh. The Americans like Japanese better than Koreans, and they like German better than the French. For the Korean case, there are many explanations for that result, but. I think that's where you've hit it on the head. What was the expectation? I think the expectation was, uh, thanks very much uh, for, for getting the Germans out, but it's our country. Um, and I think that the Americans hadn't decided quite what the French future was going to be, but did feel that that decision was one that they were going to make. Now, that's a, those are very, very different expectations. Um, did, was that what explained the, 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 uh, the specific day-to-day encounters, the way through which a, a soldier and, a, and a, a Norman peasant negotiated their relationship? No. I think that was a, that, that's a, that's a large-scale policy difference over expectation. That, what I wanted to know is what was that contact like on the ground. And there again, I think it was the, um, the nature of the fighting in Normandy was so extraordinarily um, uh, violent, ferocious, and compacted that small communities that really hadn't been affected by the war yet over the four years of German occupation, except insofar as their cattle was requisitioned or that their sons had been perhaps uh, enlisted in the forced, uh, forced labor and so on. So they had felt it, but they hadn't felt the, the, the total upending of their, of, their, of their existence. 
That happened in a very short period of time, and it was something that was very difficult to connect with a sense of joyful thanks towards arriving Americans. Um, I also write quite a lot about what happens after the war moves on. So I spent, I spent a year in, in the book in Normandy. So after the battles go on, what happens? What's left behind? That, destruction, that destroyed landscape doesn't get repaired for about a decade because the French government is completely broke. They haven't got money. Train travel between Paris and, uh, and, and Normandy is not res- restored for over a year. The, they're left in terrible squalor uh, and conditions of abject misery, writing pathetic letters back to the Ministry of, uh, of Housing um, that say, you know, leaders of, of our government, Calvados was martyred. That's the language they use. Calvados, Normandy, uh, Caen, w- were martyred for, for the liberation of France. So they were literally using the language of crucifixion. They wanted redemption. They wanted it to, their, these sufferings to be repaid. And that's, how, that's very much the language that they put it in in these public appeals in the newspapers and to the press. They said, what happened to our, our sacrifice? So again, everybody sacrifices, I think, in, in these wars of liberation. And that's, I've just tried to pull in that, um, that the, uh, to complete the picture rather than to um, focus only on the sacrifices made by the liberators. Well, please join me in thanking you. Thank you very much. He will be-